just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Burbell singh the headmistress of Michaela Community School, dubbed by some as Britain's strictest school. In 2010, Burbell Singh made headlines when she spoke at Conservative Party Conference and in the process alienated some of the teaching profession when she said, the system is broken because it keeps poor children poor, criticising a culture of excuses, of low standards and a sea of bureaucracy. In 2014, she founded the Michaela Community School in Brent, North London, as part of the Free Schools Revolution. Quickly nicknamed Britain's strictest school, the project has made headlines for its approach to discipline. The philosopher Roger Scruton has described Michaela as a model that all our schools should imitate. Earlier this year, the school received its first round of GCSE results, four times better than the national average. So Catherine, thank you very much for joining us today. So on this podcast, before we talk about your work at Michaela School and your your career in education, what we like to do is take stock by talking about briefly what you were doing before you entered your field. So you were born in New Zealand and you spent a lot of your childhood in Canada, is that correct? That's right. And your father was in education. Yeah, he was a lecturer at university in Canada. So from a young age, did you have an interest in it? Did it did it rub off on you? Or no, no, you... not at all. <laughs> no, no, uh, I not at all. I mean, I, I went off to university, didn't really know what I was going to do. It was um, my experiences at university that uh, made me interested in teaching. At Oxford at the time, there was a group of students, essentially black students, who would go to inner city schools, say in London or in Birmingham, Manchester, and talk to the kids there to say, look, you know, I'm there and it's not just a bunch of posh people kind of thing. And perhaps you might like to apply and come too. And at the beginning, when I would talk to the children, they were very anti-Oxford or Cambridge, but by the end, they'd changed their minds. And so I thought, oh, I'm really having impact. You know, at Oxford, they invite you to McKinsey drinks and things and you go along and I'd think, I can't do this for the rest of my life. So I decided to become a teacher. How was your own personal experience of Oxford? Because you attended a state school. Mm -hmm. So did did you feel like it at times did seem like a, a, you know, a posh boys club or did you find it quite open? No, it was a posh boys club. <laughs> but the fact is, there are also other people there that you can make friends with. And, and of course, now it's, it's really very different from when I was there in the early 90s. It, you know, the fact is, who cares if there's lots of posh boys? I mean, that doesn't mean there's no room for us, you know. It, it's really concerning if people don't apply because of the posh boy element. I also find it very strange, this idea of kind of feeling resentful to those posh boys. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't do something great with your life. You just need to grab the bull by the horns and run with it. And make some space for yourself. Exactly. And just uh, on your university time, did you ever have a foray into student politics or the union or were you very focused on, uh, I mean, you talked about visiting those schools. Was that more your focus? Well, yes. And I didn't like the union because it was filled with lots of posh boys. (laughs) So that wasn't me. And I was a real lefty, certainly, at the time. So I wouldn't have wanted to have anything to do with the the kind of politics and things, only in a kind of subversive way. So, yeah, it wasn't until many years later when I was teaching that I sort of changed my mind politically. 
And you went from studying your degree to go and work in education. So was it visiting those schools that made you decide you wanted to be a teacher? Yes, it was. And it was meeting those children. And um, many years later, you know, there was this girl I was uh, talking um, at an event trying to get people interested in teaching. And um, this young woman came up to me and I told the story about how I got into teaching. And she, she came up to me and she said, I was one of those children in the sixth form when you came to my school and spoke. And, and, I, and I applied to Oxford and I went and now I'm working in the city in banking and I don't like it and I'd like to become a teacher <laughs> so it was great you know uh, to come full circle like that and you made the decision to go and work in state schools rather than private education was it ever something you considered or was it very much that you saw the, the point of working in education as kind of reaching a, a wide range of backgrounds yeah I mean for me I have nothing against private schools good luck to them and great that there are teachers that want to work there I have no problem with that it just wasn't right for me I wanted to go into teaching because I wanted to teach disadvantaged kids I wanted to change the world for them that's what I've done I did consider private schools briefly when after my speech at the Conservative Party conference in 2010 and I was essentially told I would never work in the state sector again so for about five minutes I thought well maybe I should go into the private sector but then I thought but that's not who I am you know I, I, my whole life is about working with disadvantaged kids so it was for about five minutes I considered. And before we get on to that speech at Conservative Party conference when you first started working as a teacher you worked various inner city schools mm-hmm. and was it around that time that you started an anonymous blog yes. uh, which is called To Miss With Love can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, I mean, they were very unusual. There was no Twitter at the time. It was a very unusual thing to write a blog. It was a way of kind of coping with the madness. And I would come home and talk about how little Johnny had had his money stolen. And I would tell my little stories. I didn't know that at the time, sort of important people like Michael Gove or Boris Johnson were, were reading, Toby Young was reading my, my blog. I didn't know any of that. I would just write and, and enjoy myself. People would then come on my blog and have a discussion in the comments about what I was saying. And I I found myself constantly arguing with the more left-leaning people who would accuse me of being a conservative. And the um, more conservative people would come on and be very supportive of what I was saying. And I kept saying, but I can't be a conservative because I'm a nice person. And then in the end, it happened for so long, I began to just accept that that was must, must be what I am because my natural instinct was to believe in values like personal responsibility, in a sense of duty, in a belief in queen and country, in doing what's right. And when I say doing what's right, in terms of who you are, that you make the world a better place by being a better person, as opposed to always insisting that what's wrong is out there. And, and that, for me, is the divide between the right and the left. And that's not to say that there isn't wrong that's out there. I'm fighting for my kids constantly, but I'm also fighting to make them into better people and I think that's the most important thing that one can do with one's life is try and be better every single day. And when you were working in those schools that you're writing about in your blog was there you know a specific incident or you know things that you saw that that made you almost want to write this and made you believe the system wasn't working? Well, every single day. I mean, there wasn't just one incident. I mean, I was constantly appalled by the things that were going on. I remember once a boy who was leaving us for his GCSE exam, so they were all going in year 11, and I don't know, a few weeks before they went, I was talking and I said something about the Holocaust, and he said, what's that? And I went marching to my head and said, we have a boy who's leaving the school and doesn't know what the Holocaust is. And um, I was so outraged. And, you know, generally the response whenever I was outraged by things like that was, oh, well, they're in the bottom set, Catherine. Oh, come on now. Stop being so silly. Now, 
I think that we should all be struggling to try and make them into better people. <laughs> but often I'm told that poverty makes children like this, and I just don't think that's true. Go looking to the 2010 Conservative Party conference speech you made. You were approached to speak at that conference, and it seems that at the time you thought it was a great opportunity to to get your message out. Can you talk us through the invitation and then what actually happened? Well, I was a bit naive and a bit stupid. I mean, I was a teacher. I used to do lots of marking of my books and things. I was working all the time. So I, I had written this blog and then Penguin had got in touch wanting to make it into a book. I said, fine, but it had to be anonymous because obviously you're not allowed to say these kinds of things out loud. They agreed to that. My publisher happened to know Michael Gove. So she put me in touch with him saying, well, look, you can go and explain everything that's wrong with education. So I thought, great. You know, I put my list together and I went along naively thinking, I'll just give him the list and tell him what's wrong and it'll all get fixed. And I, I, I thought like that because I thought, well, people can't possibly know what's actually happening because if people knew, then they would fix it. I didn't really understand that there is a political agenda agenda out there to keep our schools the way that they are. So I went along and then he said, well, would you come to the conference? And now I realise, obviously, that that was what he wanted. He didn't really want my list. <laughs> he just wanted me to speak at the conference. And um, I sort of said, oh, well, I can't really do that because I can't say this stuff out loud. And then I again stupidly thought, well, I know what I'll do. I just won't give them my name. And if I don't give them my name, then I'll be able to tell everyone what's wrong and no one will know who I am. So, in fact, to this day, if you look at YouTube, you'll just see Catherine. You won't see my last name because I didn't give them my name. So um, I went and gave the speech and thought it would all be fine. And I think if they hadn't been bored, they were a bit bored by, I think, some nurses who had spoken to them before me. And so when I got up and gave this speech, they thought, well, isn't she great? And so they, they gave me a standing ovation, which was the problem. In giving me this standing ovation, the press suddenly turned to me, you know. And up until then, remember, nobody knew who I was. I was just a teacher, you know. I didn't know anything about political conferences. And did it turn out that just having the name Catherine wasn't enough of a decoy? <laughs> well, this was it, you know. I, I just hadn't expected. I didn't really, I didn't understand this whole world. So I got myself into a lot of hot water. You said since then that you, your quote is saying, I regret the speech at the party conference. It ruined my life. Yeah, well, it did. I mean, I was perfectly happy marking my books and being a normal teacher. And suddenly I was thrown into this life of podcasts. And, um, we apologise. <laughs> and, and interviews and just being hated by the entire world. And so, yeah, it wasn't very nice. I would have just gone along with my life as usual. And my plan had always been to take over a failing school at some point and turn it around. Now, in many ways, you know, all clouds have a silver lining. And so it's allowed me to set up Michaela and make you know, a real point, you know, a, a splash in the world of education to say, look, here, here's something that works really well. And, I, and what I'm thrilled about is that there are teachers from all over the world that come and visit us every day and they take ideas and they take them back to their schools. So I know we're not just having impact on the lives of children in Brent, but on the lives of children all over the place, really. Because after that speech, you ended up leaving the job that you held. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, it just all became so untenable. I couldn't move forward. And I, I was told by various headhunters that I would never work in the state sector again. Was that because people were offended by what you had said or do they think it was an inaccurate representation of what was happening in schools? Well I think both I mean people to this day will say it's inaccurate to say that the system is broken I mean you should be able to say that something is something inaccurate and not be kicked out of the state system I mean that in itself it demonstrates just how broken it is if you have a point of view that leans to the right suddenly you're evil. Did you get any support from your colleagues at the time? So some colleagues, yes. I lost friends. I mean, because remember, 
when I gave that speech, I was sort of coming out. So I admitted to having voted Conservative in, in the May election, which no one kind of knew. None of my friends knew. It was the first time I'd voted Conservative and I'd kind of come to accept that that's what I was. And when I say that's what I am, I don't mean big C Conservative because the Conservatives certainly don't own my vote. I'm a floating voter, but I am a small C Conservative. My natural instincts are small C Conservative. And so I'd come out and some people stopped talking to me. They just thought, how could you do this? It was to betray everything that was right as far as they're concerned. And when I say right, I mean, you know, there are many people who lean to the left who believe that the right is evil. So I had to be evil if I was voting with the right. Did you have to develop a thick skin very quickly then? So did you always have that? Well, I mean, I have, as a teacher, one has a bit of a thick skin because the kids will say all sorts of things and, you know, you, you just keep on going. But you don't necessarily have it in the national newspapers where they're attacking you and where random strangers are sending you threats and death threats even and um, all sorts of things that I've had. It's been awful. And there was a time where when I'd be leaving school from Michaela, I would look round my shoulder, you know, with Joe Cox and all of that. You just, you, you never really know. It only takes one person. And you do have some crazy people out there who say some horrible things. I mean, we had such such a nightmare at one point with the kind of hostility being sent to us via email and letters that one of my office staff had a nervous breakdown because she just couldn't take reading all the vitriol. So, um, yeah, that that's hard. I used to say, I don't really understand. You know, you'd think we were building nuclear arms and all we're doing is setting up a school. But some people are real ideologues and they believe in something that I am criticising. And... Um, you know, it has to be done. I think it has to be done because so few can do it because they're terrified and I understand why they're terrified. And so often, whenever I go anywhere, people will say, people will come up and whisper to me, I love what you say on Twitter. Oh, I love what you stand for. And then they run away. They don't dare tell me who they are because they're all too frightened. (laughs) What did you want to achieve by setting up McKay, which is seen as being part of the free school revolution, something which is being driven by Michael Gove? Yeah, I mean, the big things that we stand for are knowledge teaching. We, we do explicit instruction from the front of the classroom where the children are in rows and they look to the teacher who leads the learning. To many of your listeners, they'll think, well, what do you mean? Isn't that what teaching is? Not nowadays in 2019. In 2019, it's about child-centered learning where the children are in groups and it's the children who lead their own learning as opposed to the teacher doing it. So we're very much against that progressive way of teaching. The other thing is the discipline. We have high standards of discipline. We expect children to behave themselves and be obedient. Obedience is a word that's entirely disappeared from our vocabulary in the world of teaching and then the other thing is that we teach them gratitude so we very much believe that you should be grateful for what you've got even though you might not have very much it will make you into a happier person the idea of personal responsibility as I said before and the idea of duty to others rather than say oh I'm poor life is hard I can't make it I'm black I grew up on an estate I'm white working class my I have a single mom whatever it is we ignore that sort of thing and we say no pull yourself together and get on with it because this is the life you've got Otherwise, you will be sitting on your deathbed at 85 and looking back at your life and saying, well, it was a disaster, but, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I was born a woman or I was born black, so therefore my life had to be disastrous. And you just can't think like that. and, And so we're very much about teaching our children to be resilient. And it doesn't mean there won't be obstacles. Of course there will be. And of course I believe that there's racism and, I don't know, various problems in the world. But that doesn't mean that you throw your hands up in the air and you give up. It's more the more reason to dig deep and keep going and it's been described as Britain's strictest school in several quarters and um, I think perhaps for some of the reasons you just gave but there's certain things for example it's reported that you're not allowed to speak in the corridor mm. between your lessons mm. and 
there's also, you know, certain places you sit for lunch. Um, one of the incidents I think that garnered the most headlines was a report that pupils at Michaela have to eat in solitary confinement if their parents fail to pay their lunch bill. You mustn't they- listen to them. This is what I mean. People make up all sorts of nonsense. What and was say the truth also- of that? Look, the fact is, is that we will say to the parents, look, you need to pay for your lunches otherwise, because otherwise 40% of them wouldn't pay, right? This is the inner city. So is it right for 60% of the parents who are just as poor as the other 40% to pay for the 40% who aren't paying for their lunches. So we send them a letter and then they pay their lunches. Very simple. <laughs> I mean... And, it, and if just... they don't, with the, with the child's... So there will always be three or four children who will come out and they sit in the office with the other people in the office and they eat their lunch and then the next day they go back when their parents have paid. I mean, and it's no big deal. In fact, it's so much fun. Often the children are hoping that the parents don't pay so they can go and sit with the office staff. I mean, it's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous what they, what they say. And then they send us death threats saying we hate children. Oh, yes, I wake up every morning and get to school at 6.30 because I hate children. In fact, I spent over 20 years doing this and dedicating my life to disadvantaged children because I secretly hate them. I mean, it's utterly mad and why do we do a family lunch it means that all of our children eat their lunch right in other schools you don't know who's eating and who isn't eating if you have a canteen system and the child doesn't have money on his card he does not eat and if he brings in money to pay i can guarantee you because of the bullying that goes on in schools that money gets stolen and nobody has any idea at our school not a single child will ever go hungry right now that's a big deal not only in terms of a good thing right not only that but our children sit as a family so they sit around a table together they serve food to each other they have a conversation I would invite all your listeners I invite everyone to come and have lunch with our children because it's so wonderful to hear them being articulate and being taught the soft skills of being able to eat their food and at the same time look at the person across the table and have a conversation these are skills that the middle classes just take for granted because they don't realize that if you don't do that regularly and you go home every night and find some money on the counter to buy Kentucky Fried Chicken that you're, you're you're not being skilled and using a knife and fork. When they arrive in year seven, we have to teach them how to hold a knife and fork because they don't know how. And so people who have absolutely no idea what the inner city is like dare to be attacking me when they are not spending their lives dedicating their lives to children who are in a disadvantaged situation. And if you were to come to Michaela, you would see how happy they are, how joyful they are. Every visitor who comes to Michaela, just the first thing they say, gosh, you know, they call it Britain's strictest school because once the Sunday Times called us that, I mean, it's also ridiculous. And then every time I go on a podcast, they say, whoa, it's yeah, Britain's strict to school. Time, you know, so. I mean, it's so it's so absurd. It's a wonderful, happy place where the children get wonderful GCSEs. You know, we've got these wonderful results, obviously, in, the, in August time. And that is because our children are taught to work hard and they're taught to be kind. That's the other thing that we teach them, how to be kind to each other. And so when somebody drops a plate in the lunch hall, you don't hear everyone banging on the tables and going, because that is what normally... This kind of madness, right? I'm getting flashbacks. That, that doesn't happen. You know, you'll have five or six other children rush to help that child to pick that up. There isn't any bullying on site. There really isn't. The only, the only kind of bullying that might happen is on smartphones, which you could get me talking about for hours about how evil they are and they destroy the have children. Have you got a ban? In school. But I wish I could just ban them altogether, you know? <laughs> if you're under 18, you're not allowed to have sex, you're not allowed to drive a car, and you're not allowed to have a smartphone. <laughs> One to suggest to the government as they uh, plan their next manifesto. Indeed, I will. <laughs> I think you touched on there, but there was a book um, on McKay that where they talked about tiger teachers, and obviously we've heard about tiger mums, which. I'd say some of it's, it's almost a, a negative connotation of being a tiger mum. You force your child to the point of pushing them. What's a tiger teacher? Well, we push the kids. 
right? I mean, we want them to do as well as they can. And that's our role as adults. I don't understand why parents and teachers and whoever, the whole of society in 2019, has a problem with pushing children. That's our role. And I don't understand why we would we would turn away from that very important role because that develops them into the kinds of adults who can succeed with their lives, which ultimately is why I'm in school every morning at half past six to make sure our children succeed. Now, moving to the present day and the final part of this podcast, you mentioned then, you know, the practices and how lots of people are critical of it. But it seems at least that the current government is quite supportive of what Michaela is doing. That Gavin Williamson, the current education secretary, there have been a couple over the past couple of years, (laughs) recently visited Michaela. And it seems you have Michael Gove in the cabinet and there's there's a big push to actually praise as a good example of a free school. So do you think that the government is moving in your direction on this to the point that they want more schools to be like Michaela? Well, I don't know. Government has never said this is what makes a good school. Free schools aren't all like us. Free schools can be whatever they want to be. The idea of free schools is that you are free to do what you want and you are not tied by your local council. So that is what government's always been supportive of. I think that there are a number of individuals in the cabinet who like what we do, but I don't know if the government is, I think Boris Johnson himself really likes what, I mean, he's been to our school and he did love it. Have you dealt much with Labour on this? Because clearly we heading to an election at, at some point. And as you mentioned, Boris Johnson and others are big you know, advocates of free schools. And some have said specifically positive things about Michaela. But it feels that were there to be a Labour government, there'd be a very different stance towards free schools, including Michaela. Have you spoken to Angela Rayner at any point? No. Once, once upon a time, one of my staff ran into Jeremy Corbyn on the street and he was on his bicycle. And um, he told him he worked at Michaela and he got on his, Corbyn got on his bicycle and, and cycled away. <laughs> So um, <laughs> maybe you wouldn't get the prime ministerial visit. Oh, definitely. I mean, look, I would love, they're more than welcome to come. I would love to explain to them what we do. I would love to explain why I think their policies simply wouldn't work. You know, if they're open to that, I, I think it's unlikely, but who knows? I mean, they're more than welcome. I would love for them to come and for me to explain. Unfortunately, if you have a particular ideology about what works in education, even though there isn't any proof to demonstrate that that's what works, you will keep going with that idea. You spoke of the criticism that you've received and you're also very active on social media. I was wondering, do you look at the abuse you get online or do you, do you kind of try not to be drawn into it? Well, you know, I was on Twitter at first and then I came off it for a couple of years because the abuse was so awful. I then realised that you could block people, so I went back on and I blocked some people. I tend not to block unless people are actively rude and I tend to always give a warning. I am a headmistress, so I try and teach people how to, the difference between right and wrong, you know. I often don't read comments simply because I don't have time. I mean, what's the point? And sometimes they're, they're positive comments and sometimes I catch a comment and I think, oh, that's interesting. And then I will retweet it and I will comment on it because... I think it represents a particular point of view. So I want to explain that view to my followers. So sometimes I'll do that so it can actually be quite useful, somebody being critical of something I've said. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I've got more used to it. Although, you know, the the real abuse has stopped, you know, the, the, the death threats and the threats of all sorts of violence and so on being sent to the school. That doesn't happen anymore. We used to have people who would protest outside and sometimes insults would be, thr- would be you know, they'd shout at me directly. That doesn't happen anymore. So I am in a very different place and the school is in a very different place now that we've had results. You know, we also had our outstanding with Ofsted and so on. So we're in a much stronger position now, which is great. So 
currently in the day, I was constantly worried I might wake up one day and not have a job because you just didn't know. Our detractors were really quite powerful. It took us three years to open the school because they fought us every step along the way. Now, very last questions, uh, two of which we asked to everyone on this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And this is a question because we asked Lionel Shriver what the best advice she'd ever been given was when she told us it was a boring question. <laughs> so now we just do worst advice. Right. Well, I mean, I suppose I'd probably say to go and speak at the Conservative Party conference. <laughs> I mean, well, perhaps the worst decision I ever made. I mean, look, you know, every cloud has a silver lining and I'm all about being resilient and I'm all about picking yourself up. I always say to the children at assembly, you get knocked down, you pick yourself back up, you keep going. And that's what I've done. And so in many ways, it's been a real blessing because it's allowed me to be who I am. But in so many ways, I wish I could just go back to being the ordinary teacher that I was. You know, I, nobody knew who I was. I now go on the tube and people look at me and I think, oh, God, do you know who I am? And I just liked being anonymous. I used to love London for that very reason, because nobody knew who I was. And I could go to the local Japanese restaurant and pick up takeaway in my pajamas and nobody would know. You know, it was so great. And now I can't do that anymore. But it's just one of those things. It's just life. You know, you just you roll with the punches, don't you? You know, so I don't blame the Conservative Party conference and I don't blame Michael Gove. <laughs> Finally, uh, what have you changed your mind on in the last year? And the past two people on this podcast said their opinion of Australia and also their taste for lemon soles. So it can be a high and mighty answer, but we also don't mind if it's something perhaps more small fry. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, I don't know about small fry. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm happy my for mind. a big answer. We just keep... <laughs> well, smartphones is a big one for me. I didn't realize just how dangerous they were for children. And I've just become increasingly uh, horrified by them. When we first opened the school, I never spoke to parents about dangers of smartphones. And now I realize it because I can see it and what it happens to our children and how they become completely addicted. And it's like heroin. I mean, and um, I have to be arguing with parents trying to get them to take their smartphones off their children. Nowadays, I'm telling parents before they arrive to the school not to give their children a smartphone. So I'm not just talking about not having a smartphone in school. Obviously, I don't understand why any school would allow smartphones in school. I mean, it just seems mad to me. I mean, we had a, 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 a one of our ch children come back and talk to us recently about how, so she's left in year 11. She's gone off to another college somewhere. And she says they're allowed their phones in school and they're in lessons and they're allowed to look things up on their phones. And she said, well, all they're ever doing is going on social media in the middle of the lessons. I mean, of course, that's what happens. I'm just talking about, you know, your listeners. If you have children who are coming up to the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, you're thinking you're going to give your child a smartphone just don't do it that is my number one piece of advice you will thank me when they're 15 or 16 thank you Catherine All right. thanks for listening and if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts please do get in touch just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk